Tonight we'll be coming from the book of James. The book of James, the first chapter. And I'll be reading verses 12 through 14. James chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. In the game of football, one of the most prominent and effective plays in the offensive repertoire is the play-action pass. And because I know that there, well, my wife doesn't know what that is, I'll go ahead and explain it to you. The play-action pass is the fake that takes place whenever a quarterback acts like he's handing the ball to the running back, but in an effort to cause Coach Bruno's linebackers to suck up into that uh, line to try to tackle that running back, the quarterback actually keeps the ball and throws it over the top of those linebackers to a wide receiver that came in behind them. It's a fake. It's, a, it's an attempt to deceive or trick the defense into believing that the offense is doing one thing while they're actually doing something else. And I believe that if we're not careful right now in the day that we're living in, at the end of 2020, that we're going to fall prey to Satan's play-action pass. That is, he has been giving us a steady diet of trials this year. A steady diet of, like the offense would do, run, 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 and then finally drop the pass over the top because you're expecting a run again. Satan has been giving us that steady diet of trials, and as is the case, trials are something to be considered from James chapter 1. And thinking about the fact that trials are something that we ought to endure and, and something that we even ought to be thankful for. But sometimes we, we get to the end of those trials and we're like, I'm ready to be done. But through it all, perhaps it is the case that because we have become so distracted by trials, we have failed to stop and remind ourselves the importance of overcoming and dealing with temptation. Making sure that we're ready to face temptation and being aware of the devil's tricks and, and his, his devices. And so it is this evening that our text for tonight is James chapter number 1, verses 13 through 18. In James chapter number 1, as we said a moment ago, James has already introduced the fact that we are to count it all joy in verse number 2, that when we fall into various trials, that knowing that the testing of our faith produces patience, but then getting to chapter 1, verse number 12, there's some difference of opinion on whether or not James is, is still talking about specifically trials or a different uh, type of temptation specifically, but there's no doubt, once we jump into verse number 13 through 18, that there is a, spe a specific theme or idea to this section of Scripture in which James is reminding Christians who he's writing to that temptation is something that we ought to be looking for and making sure that we're able to overcome it. Not looking for it in the sense that we're trying to find it and want to be tempted, but being aware of the fact that it exists. And so how is it that we overcome temptation? What are the things that we need to do as Christians in order to be ready to overcome that temptation? 
So consider with me first and foremost this evening that when, te- when we're facing temptation, when temptation comes our way, we need to, number one, remember its destination. Remember its destination. Read with me verses 13 through 16. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Consider when we're thinking about temptation's ultimate destination, that this ought to be an encouragement for us to avoid temptation, to overcome it because of where it ultimately leads. Temptation's ultimate destination. Don't misunderstand. To be tempted is not necessarily a sin. Just because you are dealing with a temptation does not mean, does not give that you are actually committing a sin. Temptation is something that we all struggle with. Temptation is something that everyone deals with. Why is that the case? Because temptation is a result of desires that we have. First and foremost, notice what James says, that sin is ultimately a process. It's a process. It's not a one and done type of thing. There's things that take place that lead up to sin. First, notice that desire is seen in verse number 14, that that sin comes about because of a desire that we have, that we possess. It's born out of our desires. Desires, though, in and of themselves are not bad or sinful. We need to recognize, though, where sin ultimately starts. But then notice the next part of the equation, that sin comes when desire is believed to be or when we have deception that enters into our hearts that tells us that that these desires that we can give into them no matter what we want to do no matter what we think consider that sin only has ever or only ever has a chance of being conceived when we believe the lie that we can act upon our desires without consequence that we can just do whatever we want without consequence, that, that we believe that lie, that we have that desire and then deception enters in, that we can just do whatever we want. James likens it to, what does he say here? When we are drawn away like a trap, almost like that play-action pass, we're drawn into that running back, we're drawn into maybe like, a, like a, an animal of some sort might be drawn into a trap by some sort of bait, or he also uses the word enticed, Just like a fish might be enticed by a worm on a hook, but inside of that worm is actually that painful device, that that hook. On the outside it may look good, but you believe the lie and you end up with consequences. Most desires are inherently good. Most desires are, are not inherently evil, but most desires also have restrictions wherein they can be acted upon. Just because you have a desire for something doesn't mean that you can act upon that desire without any type of restraint, without any type of restriction. And so we have desire. We have the concept of deception, but ultimately when disobedience enters in, that's when sin begins to be given birth to. Notice what what verse 15 says. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. It gives birth to sin. It's not until that lie is believed and acted upon 
that sin is actually born. So sin is a process that ultimately, as we said before, what is, what is the first thing we ought to be thinking about whenever we're trying to avoid sin, we're trying to overcome sin, we're trying to overcome temptation? What is its ultimate destination? James goes on to say that sin not only is a process, but it leads to penalty. It leads to death. Notice the end of verse number 15. Sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Not always, not even most often, does it lead to physical death, but every time does it lead to spiritual death. When sin enters into our lives, spiritual death is the result. That is, that we are separated from our God. Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2. Some have likened it in thinking about this process to the Adam and Eve account, particularly, at, uh, particularly Eve, whenever she took of that fruit. She had a desire to have that knowledge. She had a desire to, to take of that particular fruit. And she believed that deception, that lie that Satan told, and ultimately it was her own willful disobedience that led to spiritual death. And physical death, ultimately, because at that time there was no physical death. They were living for an eternity, if you will, at least at the time, in that, in that blissful Garden of Eden. But when sin entered in, it led to that spiritual death, that separation from God, but also, ultimately, physical death that enters in to all of mankind. By the way, sin is also pleasurable. You know, sometimes we, we may be doing our young people a disservice in letting them believe that there is nothing pleasurable about sin. It's not something that we should encourage them to engage in sin because there's pleasure to be found in it. But if you recall, turn with me just a few pages back to Hebrews chapter number 11 when the Hebrews writer is speaking of Moses in Hebrews chapter 11 verses 24 through 26 that Moses, verse number 24, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. The key word there in that phrase there is the fact that it's passing. Yes, sin brings about pleasure, but it doesn't bring about lasting pleasure and joy. It doesn't bring about lasting hope and, and lasting reward. But notice what Moses did. Rather, instead of enjoying the pleasures of sin for, for a, a season, he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Sin is pleasurable. The Bible doesn't deny this, but it's incomparable to the alternative. It's incomparable to what we have as an alternative which serves as a perfect transition for us to our next point. In doing so, consider Romans chapter 6 and verse number 23. For the wages of sin is death. The penalty of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. The riches that is found that are found in Christ Jesus are far more weighty and worthwhile of our time than the fleeting pleasures of sin that we might enjoy for a season. Consider next, as we said a moment ago, that when facing temptation, not only should we remember its ultimate destination, but we should also remember its competition. That is to say, think about what temptation has to compete with. More appropriately, who temptation has to compete with. That is our God. 
Notice again in our text, James chapter number 1 and verse number 17. He just got finished saying, don't be deceived. God doesn't tempt anyone, nor is he tempted. But rather, every good gift, verse number 17, and every perfect gift is, far, is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. One way to overcome temptation certainly is to think about where temptation ultimately leads and to fear the ultimate punishment of hell. But that's not the only way to overcome temptation, and it shouldn't be our only tool in our toolbox. The other thing to consider is the goodness of God, to consider the, the competition with which temptation is up against, that consider the alternative as, as Moses did in, in not esteeming the pleasures of sin to be better than the riches that are found in Christ. Consider the goodness of God. Where do you look for the things that you need? Where do you seek out the things that you need? Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. But where do you look for the things that you need? God gives only good gifts. The way God gives is only good. He gives constantly God does not change. Notice the end of verse number 17, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. God is trustworthy. His gifts are reliable. The promise of eternal life is reliable. Don't give up on those things. Consider the goodness of God. If you're looking for those things somewhere else, though, then temptation is going to be more difficult to endure. If I'm not looking for the acceptance of God, then I'm going to seek it elsewhere. I'll be tempted by the things of the world and I might find myself having given in to the pressure of my peers. If in times of difficulty I'm not seeking comfort in God, then I'm going to seek it elsewhere. And in those times I might be tempted by the things of the world and I might find myself at the bottom of a bottle of alcohol. If I'm not seeking love from my Heavenly Father then I'm going to seek it elsewhere and I'll be tempted by the things of the world and I might find myself in the arms of another who is not my spouse. If I'm not seeking the things that I need to be seeking in God, then I'm going to be seeking them elsewhere. When facing temptation, remember temptation's competition. That is God. That is, where do I find the things that I need, that I'm looking for, that I want? Do, do I invoke the goodness of God in times of distress or do I cave to the incomparable alternatives that we mentioned earlier regarding Moses' estimation of sin. Call to remembrance. Bring to the forefront of your mind the goodness of God when facing temptation. So not only, though, consider the goodness of God, but also turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter number 10. Consider the goodness of God, but also consider the protection of God. Consider the protection of God, a beautiful promise that God has given to us through his apostle Paul as he's writing to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So consider the protection of God. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to bear. Some people have misremembered this verse. They say, God won't allow you to, to deal with anything more than you can handle, but that's not what he's saying. God won't allow you instead to deal 
or to endure temptation beyond what you're able to bear. Some people might say, I just couldn't help myself. The temptation was too strong. Yes, you could. And no, it wasn't. You're not remembering the protection of God if you say those things because God, through His Apostle Paul, reminds us that He will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able. So we have the protection of God, the goodness of God, but also consider the provision of God at the end of verse number 13. What does God provide for us? He provides for us a way of escape that we may be able to bear it. One man said, the Bible uses one word over and over again when telling believers how to respond in temptation. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, flee youthful passions. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse number 18, flee from sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, the next verse that we were just reading a moment ago, flee from idolatry. It reminds us of the picture that we saw in Joseph as he fled from Potiphar's wife. The list could go on and continue. It does not mean that temptation will not be a struggle, but it will not be impossible. God provides a way of escape. I've also heard it said that the answer to every temptation is a quotation. The answer to every temptation is a quotation. Remember what Jesus did in Matthew chapter number 4 and each temptation that he faced in the wilderness from the devil? It has been written. It has been written. It has been written. Jesus turned back to the Scriptures. God has provided for us a way of escape in every situation if we'll just but remember His Word and what He said, if we'll just but remember the promises that He's made to us, if we'll just but remember the fact that He's with us and that He'll protect us and that He has provided for us in every circumstance. So remember the ultimate destination of temptation. Remember temptation's competition. But finally this evening, when facing temptation, remember its opposition. Remember its opposition. Whereas before we said temptation is up against God when, it seemed, when we're talking about his competition, now remember that temptation is up against you. Temptation is up against you. Think about who temptation is up against. You are a soldier of God. You can overcome this. This is a battle of a juggernaut versus a peewee football team. Sure, the peewee football team can win, but only if you let it. Only if the juggernaut just lays down and lets the peewee football team run to the end zone without even trying to tackle them. Why is this the case? Because of God's own will, back in James chapter number 1, of God's own will, He chose to bring us forth. Of His own will, He brought us forth. He chose you, and He chose me, not in the unconditional election type of idea of Calvinism that says that you have no choice but to be saved, but rather that He chose each and every Christian. And He chose each and every one of us to have the opportunity to be part of His church. He chose us, and He didn't just pick us as like the last option. Maybe you remember in high school, pick up basketball games when you say, all right, I'll take him, and the other captain says, okay, I'll take him, and then there's that last one. Oh, well, I guess, I guess I'll take you. It's not the case. God chose you in eternity. He chose every one of us from the very beginning. He brought us forth. We are no longer our own. We belong to God. And we should hold on to and call to remembrance the price tag that is on our head that is that Jesus purchased us with His own blood. Acts chapter 20, verse number 28. 
He valued us that much. It's not to say that we should be haughty and prideful, but rather that we should not have a lower view of self than God has of us. But also consider what James says of his own will. He brought us forth by the word of truth. The word of truth is quite simply the gospel message. He brought us forth by the fact that Jesus Christ was, had died, was buried, and was resurrected. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1-4. through 4. The good news of the gospel, He's brought us forth by that, and it's in this word of truth that He has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Including how to face and overcome temptation. It's in this word of truth also that He has revealed to us the things that we need to refine and change things that we need to work on that we might be complete, thoroughly equipped unto every good work. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. So he brought us forth, and he brought us forth by the word of truth, and then notice in the next phrase, that we might be a new creation. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We're a new creature If you are truly converted to Christ, you are not the same person that you used to be. It's not that you've magically been changed to be able to overcome a temptation that you previously had to deal with, that you no longer might be tempted by that thing, but now, as a Christian, a sincere Christian, that way of life, that choice, is no longer even an option for you. See Romans chapter number 6. It's not even an option for you to sin anymore. Not that you won't be tempted, not that you won't be uh, occasionally that you won't stumble, but rather that your way of life is committed to not even sinning anymore. We are a new creation. Temptation's up against that. It's easy to tempt a non-Christian. It's easy to tempt somebody that hasn't already tasted salvation. It's easy to tempt somebody that hasn't become a new creature, but you as a Christian, you're a, a new creation, and you have tasted the goodness of God, and you have tasted the blessings of Christ, and so it should theoretically be hard to tempt you. Facing temptation when we're facing it, remember, you're a force to be reckoned with. Not that you can do any of these things in and of yourself, but rather that you have God on your side, and you're a faithful Christian in Him. And we are first fruits of His creatures. We are special and useful to God. Notice the end there, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What's so special about being a first fruit of his? We are a testament to his powerful hand. That is, our new life is a testament to his eternal power. And when we don't endure temptation, though, we fail to testify to his power. Just like a basket or a bushel of spoiled fruit might shine a dim light on a farmer, so too do we when we are spoiled. Spoiled Christians, not spoiled like a spoiled brat, but rather that we're not any longer ripe and fresh and and wholesome. That in those cases, we cause God's glory to be dimmed in the eyes of others. What's so special about being a first fruit of His? We are a testament to His powerful hand, but also God plans to use us. Think about it. What can a farmer do with the fruit that has been produced by his tree or his orchard, whatever it may be? He can take from that fruit and gather hundreds or so of seeds and produce even more in the future. So can God, when we realize that we are a first fruit of His, a special creature of His, that we're able to help the kingdom flourish and thrive. 
to grow even more. But when we fail to endure temptation, we rob Him of that opportunity because He can't use us in those circumstances because we're separated from Him. So when facing temptation, remember temptation's ultimate destination, where it leads. Remember its competition, who you really have to esteem better than that temptation but God. Think about the blessings that are found in Him, but finally remember its opposition, that you have the ability to withstand it because you are one that belongs to God. Could it be that the devil has had our eyes fixed so long on the various trials of 2020 that we have neglected to think about his wily temptations in the process? Don't forget that Satan is a roaring lion, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. He wants nothing more than to entice you and to consume you. When, but when facing temptation, have these three tools in your pocket that we've talked about this evening. Are you struggling with temptation tonight? You want to know what else helps with temptation? Just a few pages over at the end of the book of James. James says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The prayers of these people here tonight help with temptation. They do. They will help you to overcome the difficulties of this life, not just the trials and the financial hardships. Is that what you're only coming to the church for? When you're facing financial difficulties, that's reasonable when it's needed. But if you never come to the church and ask for help when you're dealing with temptation, you're missing out on a great blessing. The effectual fervent prayer of the righteous does much for those that are struggling with sin. Will you let us help you? Whether you're not a Christian and you want to deal with sin by having us baptize you in the water grave of baptism, or whether you are a Christian and you want to have that guilt of temptation removed from you once again, if there's anything that we can do for you, we ask that you come as we stand and as we sing. I heard an old, old story.